are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Weird Science Marvel Comics podcast, where I'm going to be going through a couple books this week in a midweek show. Still trying desperately to catch up, and I will tell you that while a lot of that problem is my laziness, another bit is just kind of being bored with a lot of what Marvel is putting out right now. I ended up where this week in a manga that I was reading, which is kind of telling, uh, said that and kind of reminded me of that saying that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference, and that's kind of where I am with a lot of these books. Now, you'll find out by the end of this podcast that there are some things that I hate as well, but for the most part, a lot of these books are just not that exciting. Things seem to be at a low. I know that this can all change very quickly, and I hope it does, but in the meantime, I was struggling a bit putting this what isn't that long of a podcast together. So that is just a little bit here at the beginning, you know, to be a Debbie Downer as we go. But we'll have fun with this stuff as we always do before we get into these books. So please go off to Twitter at WS Marvel Comics. Follow us. We'll follow you on back. Go to our website, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com to check out reviews mostly from Gabe. And then in the meantime, go to the patreon to help us out for everything that we do on this feed also we have our dc stuff our manga stuff and at the patreon you end up having a ton of comic book stuff it's a celebration of comics and that's what actually keeps me going when i do have these lulls with some of the big two stuff i always have something else to do and to read and review and have fun with anyway and you can as well if you go to our patreon at patreon.com slash weird Science. So check out all those. They'll all be in the show notes, links, and things to click. But we're going to go off right now to these books. We're going to start with what we do start out with when it comes out The Amazing Spider Man. It's just that I thought that Zeb Wells was going to finally get to that big mystery or mysteries. What happened to Peter and York? Why is Mary Jane married with kids? What not? But no, no, we have a guest deal going with joe kelly and as you'll hear i was not very pleased but we'll start with that and then move on to a bunch of books i'll talk to you by the end thanks everybody enjoy the show amazing spider-man number 19 and hey at least dark web is over right so now zeb wells can get back to what everybody has wanted for over a year now what happened to peter in york pennsylvania and how and why is mary jane married with children uh, wait a second. Joe Kelly is filling in for two issues. Unacceptable! That is definitely unacceptable. Okay, now I'm depressed. Let's get to the credits and a bit of a recap. I already said guest written by Joe Kelly. Guest pencils and colors by Terry Dodson. Guest inks by Rachel Dodson. And resident letter VCs Joe Caramagna. It says we're proud to welcome a fantastic guest creative team while Zeb and Johnny get ahead on their next arc. Maybe the time will actually let them write something that's worthwhile. I doubt it. But here's the previously. Peter's life was back on track. Now, this is the funny thing. It it was never back on track. So don't even play the game and stop with your nonsense. Peter's life was back on track until his clone Chasm came around to take a shot at him. Now that Spidey has unwoven Chasm's dark web, did he? He can get back to his quote-unquote normal life. You know, normal. Like when your long-term girlfriend is mysteriously married with kids. 
or working for your former arch enemy who has tortured you and killed those you love for years, or dating the world's greatest cat burglar, a normal life back on the track. Is that the case? Well, we'll see. And I'll tell you right now, I'm not a fan of Joe Kelly. I know he's written some big stories, but I am a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of guy. And what he has done lately is drive me nuts with garbage like nonstop and savage Spider-Man. Still, I don't want to add to my anger by projecting my Zebwell's hate and frustrations from this book on him. So I'm going to take a deep breath and continue. Uh, now, I am in my happy place and I will begin by telling you this issue sucks. I get that it's supposed to be a cooldown after Dark Web, but I don't need a cooldown. What I need is for someone to show up here and roofie my ass so I don't remember any of it. Plus, while I am frustrated about the lack of answers this book has been giving us, I'm more pissed off that the writers seem to delight in rubbing that in our faces. And I say writers, plural, because Joe Kelly and all of his non-wisdom does just that in this issue. As the kids say, down at the rec center, WTF, WTF. The issue opens with the standard. I don't want to say generic because I'm trying to be nice here. Spider-Man having fun in his friendly neighborhood, taking down some goons with the help of Black Cat, having a snowball fight with some kids, drinking hot cocoa on our rooftop. It's nice enough. The problem I have from the beginning, though, is the tug of war that Kelly is fighting between wanting to make the story work in the current state of affairs, but not being able to say or do much of anything because you got to keep the big reveals in the right before what's going to come next from Seb Wells. Some of it's just little things, like Peter saying he finally has money in the bank from working with Norman. Well, he never did resolve the mass amount of debt that he had collecting up and having a collection agency pretty much take up a second residence on his doorstep. You know, that debt that strained his relationship with Aunt May big time, all that seems to be forgotten in this issue for a quick, quote-unquote, can't-hide-anything-from-Aunt-May condom joke uh, that we've seen. Not the condom joke, but we've seen the idea that Aunt May is more smarter than we thought. Again, pretty standard, and I do mean generic. The tug-of-war continues when Felicia convinces Peter to go on a ski weekend with her, and when they get to the lodge, Mary Jane and Paul are also there. Back to the rec center, WTF. Joe Kelly needs to read the room here. I'm totally convinced he is one of those guys that would try to tell jokes at a wake to lighten the mood. And I'm also totally convinced he's been punched in the face a couple times just because of that. Now, the fun continues with yet another knockoff Sinister Six. Spidey's buddy Kareem showing up in a scheme that everybody knows will go horribly wrong. And then it goes horribly wrong the problem is i don't give a rat's ass about anything happening in this issue joe kelly needs to take some adderall before putting pen to paper because this story is so all over the place that by the time i got to the cliffhanger i want to read the next issue but only to see how much more convoluted bullshit he can cram into one book terry dodson's art is good enough but the page layouts and transitions add to the confusion of joe kelly's nonsense Instead of reeling it in a bit and making things easier on my pea-sized brain. Because of all of that and the fact that we just end up having a cool-down guest writer and artist issue when really all we want 
is to get to what has been happening. And uh, because of all that, I'm giving it a 4.5 out of 10. And it just the frustration in this amazing Spider-Man run just keeps mounting. And I just wish that a guest creative team might have been able to just have a little fun. Forget about all this crap that's been going on. I mean, everything that's led up to this, you really don't need to give us that in what are just going to be a two-issue little mini arc where maybe we could have some fun. And I, I didn't have fun with this. It just made me more and more frustrated. All right, now we'll move on to a book that I am a fan of the writer, just maybe not so much recently. But let's move on to Daredevil number eight. Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil has been one of my favorite comics for a bunch of years running. But unfortunately, that is no longer the case in 2023. To be honest, it hasn't been since Devil's Reign ended in May of 2022. I won't say I hate what has happened since the book restarted with the new number one. But I can tell you that it is no longer the first book I read every Wednesday. If Daredevil versus Punisher doesn't get me back on board, I'm kind of worried that nothing will. Let's start out with what are the credits and a little bit of recap. Uh, Daredevil number eight is written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Marco Cicchetto, colors by Matthew Wilson with Eric Arcianega, and way down below, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. It's the Red Fist Saga Part 8. And here's a bit of the recap that is something we need to know. The Hand has kidnapped an unknown number of world leaders and replaced them with death-worshipping puppets. My favorite kind of puppets, actually. Usually, anytime you get puppets, they're always going to do something wacky, right? Puppets are always up to no good. Framing Electra for the assassination of the President of the United States in the process. Emboldened by their new leader, the Punisher, the Hand has made their next move by kidnapping the son of one of Matt's new recruits, the criminal Bullet. Forcing Matt and Electra to finally take their fledgling army to war. And I love the idea that this play is, all right, we kidnap all of these world leaders, replace them with death-worshipping puppets, we frame Electra. Now what is our big move? Let's kidnap the son of Bullet. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really work out in the progression of things in my mind, uh, but I guess that's how they roll. Now, the issue opens with a huge rain-soaked battle between the fist and the hand with a giant dragon smack dab right in the middle. As Matt waxes poetic between what good and bad men in heaven and hell are all about, I just sat there thinking about how a giant dragon kind of symbolizes how far this book has gotten from what I enjoyed about it in the past. Some may like the spectacle. Of a giant dragon in the middle of the battle here, and and it does fit enough with the mystical goings ons of the current situation. But I kind of miss the personal gritty street level stories Chip Zdarsky was telling before that also allowed what seemingly was the big thing and the big draw that I had with this book a lot of really good character moments. The overall story here, though, with Matt, Electra, and their ragtag fist team is okay they're they're not just fighting the punisher led hand but trying to save bullets young son lance that gives you some stakes while also trying to free bullet from the mind whammy he's in because you know you, you gotta have bullet on your side or you're done they do accomplish that but but at what cost 
it's one of those winning the battle but losing the worst situations. And by the end, they do limp away with everyone, especially Electra, worse for wear. By the end, it just doesn't seem like they're really doing that much. Yeah, you have this fight. They do save Lance. They do end up grabbing Bullet. But overall, you get done and they just leave like, eh, let's just head off from here and figure out what's next. It just does not seem like what had just happened was as big as maybe it should have been. By the end, though, I'm really struggling to care about what's going on overall. Matt has become a bit insufferable with his inner monologue. He's one of those guys that is like at the party. And he's in the corner talking his philosophical mumbo jumbo and you want to just go and slap him right upside the head, right? And side the side characters, once the huge strength of this run, are not fleshed out much at all and feel more like props in Matt's no bad man rehab island experiment. People like Stiltman or Stegron, they're just there to deal with the situation at hand. Stiltman grabs Matt as he falls off the dragon. Stegron is trying to communicate with the dragon, but these don't feel like fleshed out characters. You're not getting the good work that we ended up at the beginning of this run. Even returning characters like Cole North feel less of what they were before. And I hope we do get more electric and she at least slices and dices instead of talking down to me, which I know is fully Matt's intention. I know he's saying that nonsense just to drive me personally insane. But just remember and just think, if you are a fan of this run, how great the book was, not just because of Matt, but more so at points because of Kingpin, Wilson Fisk, because of Cole when he first showed up, because of the Strom wins. All of these characters really did flesh out the book. It it made it bigger and it made it something that I had to read. Now it just feels like, Chip Starsky has this, you know, prison rehab message, and he's kind of shoving it into the story. And by the end, it's not really as engaging as it once was. And overall, this issue was a big fight scene with good art and a dragon, and me checking the page count a couple times, which is a telltale sign for me that I was pretty bored. I know that people still put this book up up on a pedestal, but I have a sneaking suspicion. It's because of how good the book used to be, not because of the quality of it now. I'm giving this issue a 6 out of 10. And really, the thing that saddens me the most about it is it feels like Chip Zdarsky is just going through the motions now to finish up this fist versus hand story that he had been hinting at before and now wants to finish before he leaves this book completely. And that's something that is a shame because it was, as I said, my favorite, not one of my favorites. This was my favorite book in all of comics for a couple of years running. So it has gotten to a point where still reading it, I still enjoy moments, but overall pretty bored with it. All right. So that didn't cheer me up at all, but there's still hope. People, there is still hope in all of this because we're going to go off now to a new number one. Red Goblin. And I'll tell you, at the beginning, not really that excited about it. I didn't really care much, but I hope that people will be pleasantly surprised that I kind of did like it by the end, though I didn't love it. But hey, what do I love? I don't know. Ask my wife. But we're going to go off to Red Goblin number one right about now. When this book was first announced, 
I kind of shrugged, figured, yeah, I might check that out when it comes out, and then completely forgot about it until this week when it ended up coming out, and then voila, here I am. All right, that's not much of a hype way of starting a review out, but it is the honest truth, and I think I've finally gotten to the point of being all symbioted out, which is not a good thing with what is coming our way from Marvel in the next bunch of months. But maybe Alex Pactadol can get me fired up again. That is the dream. But did this first issue accomplish it? Let's find out. Let's shoot over to the credits and the recap as we do. Red Goblin number one is written by Alex Pactadol. Art by Jan Balzaduela. <laughs> Colors by David Coriel. Letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. And yes, indeed, I did nail. All of those names. Here's the recap. Normie Osborne is the son of Harry Osborne and Liz Allen and grandson of Green Goblin Norman Osborne. Since before Normie's birth, his family has been ensnared in the web of Spider-Man and his superheroics. That's as true now as it has ever been and recently the love, lust, and lies that have connected Spider-Man and the Osbournes for so long cost Harry his life and Normie his father. Though neither Normie nor his mother are aware of the exact circumstances of Harry's passing. Normie's involvement in superpowered intrigue has grown even more complicated than that, though, as after a brief rivalry, he has developed something of a friendship with Dylan Brock, the current host of the Venom symbiote and son of the original Venom, Eddie Brock, who himself has gone missing. In the wake of Madeline Pryor and Ben Riley's attempt to cast all of New York under a dark web and drive me completely insane, Dylan is more determined than ever to find his father and in need of allies, gave Normie a tiny piece of the alien symbiote because you know that's going to work out, creating a new and terrifying vision of the Red Goblin. And so what is all going on here? Well, I don't know if you know this, but I am not a fan of books that go heavy on the narration. Maybe I am a show-me-don't-tell-me kind of guy. Maybe I'm just an asshole with a severe attention deficit disorder. Or maybe it's a little column A and column B, but it's not my favorite thing. However, if a writer insists on it, they need to get the voice of the characters telling it right. And I do not like Pat Nadell's voice for Normie, at least at the beginning of this issue. I know he's a very smart kid, but he's still just a little kid. And from the get-go, it feels off. Normie says things like, family can be like quicksand. The harder you struggle, the deeper you sink. Yep, little kid talk. And then he says that his grandfather, Norman, has a higher body count than cigarettes. That's what my 10 to 12-year-olds are always saying now and again, right? It just felt off. It felt really forced. But it did get better. As far as the story goes, people who haven't been reading the symbiote books for the last couple of years might feel off balance at first. But the major points are very easy to pick up. And... Pagnadol does a good enough job of recapping what you need to know and get things running. And really, it's just Normie has a piece of the symbiote he calls Rascal that helped him fought alongside Dylan as Red Goblin. And away we go. Easy peasy. The issue opens with Normie and the symbiote running into a reformed, not reformed, goblin nation. And the fight is on. While Normie looks at it as cleaning up more of his grandfather's mess. There are bigger things at play here. After escaping the Red Goblin attack and leaving Normie unconscious, the Goblin Nation thugs go back to their mysterious boss who figures out, okay, Red Goblin, 
Red Goblin equals Norman Osborn. I'm triggered. I'm angry. I'm on the attack. And really all this issue for the most part is kind of that misdirection that the Goblin Nation thinks that Norman Osborn is back as the Red Goblin uh, when in fact it is Normie and Normie trying to be a superhero with it. Now, throughout the issue, we do get bickering between Normie and the symbiote, which I do like. And unfortunately, it sadly points out that Normie is pretty much alone all the time and really needs more friends than, say, a Dylan Brock, who is the worst influence on him anyway. So it made me sad because I do like Normie, nice little kid. But there's also a part where Norman talks to his grandson, Normie, and I think that's the best part of the issue. And it shows you that Pachnadol, while I thought that the narration at the beginning was a little off, he is doing a couple things here and doing some character work that is getting me invested in the characters, not just telling, you know, the story of, hey, here's Red Goblin and go with the wow factor of that. I do give him credit fully for that. When Norman is talking to Normie about what it is to be an Osborne and how Normie can be something better, it really does show Norman in that light of realizing what he has done in the past and trying to reform himself as well. The issue continues with Norman then being attacked and captured by the Goblin Nation and Pachnadol revealing who their boss is. It's not the craziest of reveals, but it should be really cool seeing Normie as Red Goblin show up to save his grandfather and how everybody there will react to that, especially Norman when he sees this. So I'm really looking forward to going forward to that. And because of that, this is a decent start to a series that I still don't know that I need to read, but I didn't get angry reading this number one issue. And seriously, right now, that's a win. As sad as that sounds, that is a win for me. I like Normie and Rascals back and forth. And in my opinion, this issue actually did a better job than the Gold Goblin book in showing Norman's past sins, biting him in the ass, and putting those he loves in danger. And the art by Balzaduea is good overall. And so all of that down, I'm giving this Red Goblin number one an 8 out of 10, which by the time I finished the issue, shocked me. I did not think I would like this as much as I ended up doing, so there it is. Proof that I do like some comics now and again. And I ended up mentioning the Gold Goblin book, kind of like a wink-wink to myself, because that's what we're going to continue and finish this week's podcast with, the old... Christopher Cantwell, oh my goodness, Gold Goblin, number four. And I'm always a bit conflicted reading and reviewing this book. I actually like the mystery of whether Norman was committed to being a better guy and think that a book exploring Norman's struggle with his past could be really good. However, watching Christopher Cantwell ham-fist his way through this story is not what I was hoping for, but when was the last time I actually got what I was hoping for? I'll tell you. It was the one Christmas I got Pitfall for the 2600, and that was a very, very long time ago. So let's see how angry this issue makes me. Let's go off to the credits and recap as we do with these videos. The Gold Goblin number four is written by Christopher Cantwell, of course. Art by Lan Medina and Raphael Pimentel. Inks by Craig Jung, Raphael Pimentel, John Olivesay, and Roberto Poggi. 
and colors by Antonio Fabella and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Here's the recap. That's a lot of artists right there for a book that looked like crap. While no one had a good night when the dark web had spun over New York City, I mean, really, I didn't have a, a good bunch of months. Few had a worse time than Norman Osborne after getting beaten within an inch of his life. Norman learned that his sins weren't just taken away. They were given to someone else. Ashley Kafka was injected with Norman's sins in the Goblin formula to transfer her into Queen Goblin. Not Goblin Queen, Queen Goblin. Blaming Norman for her new monstrous form, Kafka paid him a vengeful visit. To make matters worse, Norman was then attacked by Jack-O-Lantern. The second-rate villain was no match for the Gold Goblin. But just before Norman delivered a death blow to Jack, his guild overtook him once more. Which is a good thing, maybe. Seeing reflections of himself and his dead son, Harry, Norman instead talked Jack-O-Lantern down from his violent desires. As the sun rose on a new day, so did Norman's new forgiving attitude toward his past sins. And here we go. The first thing I think people notice about this book is the awful art. I already said it, but it took all those artists, four anchors, two artists. What a mess. Oh, well, the story itself starts with Norman telling Peter, he has free reign at Oscorp, which in my mind is a not-so-subtle way of saying bad crap is about to happen to Norman in the very, very near future, and we just need to know what the status quo will be with Peter after that goes down. We also see Owen Ward, the jack-o'-lantern, who Norman beat the crap out of working through his trauma with Dr. Fromm slash Dr. Kafka slash Queen Goblin. Not Goblin Queen, Queen Goblin. He actually seems to be getting better. I mean, really, aren't we all relieved at that? That's what I've been worrying about. Oh, my God. Owen Ward, I hope he gets better. And says he doesn't even feel like throwing any flaming pumpkins around, which is definitely a good thing if you're trying not to be the jack-o'-lantern. However, after Norman takes down the shocker as Gold Goblin, the police ask for his help in an ongoing hostage situation, which seems very odd for the police to do. But when he arrives to help, the bad guy is indeed Owen, decked out in his jack-o'-lantern gear. What, what? What happened? Well, things are explained a bit by the end. Everything about this scene feels so, so forced. And because you know it's a, it makes Norman look like a complete dummy. I don't want to spoil it, but the repercussions of the scene also don't quite match it either. As if Cantwell wants it to be more about Norman's inner struggle, so he negates the real-world consequences of what just happened. Cantwell's lack of subtlety continues as Norman chokes out the -the of-the-mind ghost of Gwen Stacy, and then has the ghost explain to Norman she isn't really a ghost, but is his conscience talking to him. It's as if Cantwell thinks he is so damn smart that he needs to explain this high-concept story beat to us peasants spoiler alert chris your story isn't that clever or smart the issue ends with a big reveal that everyone already knew and me understanding once again why christopher cantwell can't sell a comic book to save his life guess what i hated this issue cantwell's clunky ass writing makes what could have been an interesting look at norman osborne's inner struggles into the equivalent of an overacted d-rate drama Couple that with awful art, and I think I am done with this series, which is a shame because I want to see what happens, and I really do like 
Norman as the Gold Goblin, just not in his regular solo Gold Goblin book because of Christopher Cantwell. I don't think I'm the only one. I've mentioned this before, but looking at the reviews on Comic Book Roundup, sometimes the amount of reviews are more telling than the actual scores themselves because what happens is sites that aren't getting traffic for a review, which does mean that nobody's interested in it, they end up bailing on it. If nobody's coming to read the review, they bail on it. And this issue has one review, one review for a book that should be a big book. It's the same amount of reviews as the newest issue of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? And seriously, that's better written. I'm giving this book a four out of 10. I think that Christopher Cantwell is a complete and utter hack. If you like them, that's all the power to you, but maybe you should read more comics. That's just a suggestion from me, but I think he is awful, awful, awful. But there you go. Four out of 10 out of here. I don't know if I'm going to continue, except I kind of like yelling about Christopher Cantwell's lack of writing talent. So maybe I'll be back. All right. And that's it. I I would have loved to have ended on a good note. Maybe I should have talked about Red Goblin last, but that is my book of the week. If you are, you know, worried about that sort of thing, but hey, here it is. We're, We're going through this. I like talking to people about comics. It's just that sometimes I get in these lulls of the comics really not doing much for me. I said it at the beginning. The opposite of love is actually indifference. In a lot of these books, I am very indifferent on. Hopefully that changes, and it always can change, and it does seem like it always does. I've been doing this sort of thing for over 10 years now, actually, and there are these peaks and valleys. But right now, they're in a bit of a valley in my mind, but things can get better, and they get better quick when they do. So hopefully that comes up soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening, though. Please subscribe. What am I saying? Please go to Twitter. I got to remember where I'm doing this and why. Please go to Twitter at WS Marvel Comics. Follow us. We'll follow you back. Go off to our website, weirdsciencecomics.com, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com. I'm really struggling. This is what this is what happens. This is Cantwell's deal for me. He's driven me so nuts after that issue, and here I am. I can't even talk. Weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com. Go there. There's reviews, I think. Also, head over to our Patreon for everything that we do on this regular feed. If you're listening to all our other podcasts, but you'll get ton of podcasts in return. And that is patreon.com slash weird science. Say, I got that. That's it. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the show. And I will talk to you all later. You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution.